I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. The views expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily the views of domestic and sexual abuse services. And welcome back to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. I'm your host, Dan, and uh, we are bringing to you today uh, a little bit of a mixed bag of survivor story and expert and author and so forth. Uh, my guest today is an author and entrepreneur, um, the founder of a very successful family entertainment concept called Monster Mini Golf. Really interested to hear more about that in particular, um, but also is a survivor and wrote a book called Every Nine Minutes. Christina Vitaliano. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being a, a part of I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. So one of our goals <clears throat> is to bring uh, hope and help to our listeners. Um, and we like to bring hope by sharing survivor stories for those who have been through abusive relationships, through have been abused in some way, assault, whatever, to, to share the idea that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Not that recovery and healing is is an end point, but it's a journey. Um, so I'm I'm very interested to hear more about your story. But let's start right now with where where you are in life. Uh, I mentioned in your intro, you're an entrepreneur, you're an author. You wrote this book every nine minutes. What? Why did you want to write a book, uh, about, like a mem a memoir about your story? Uh, I guess a, a couple of reasons. One, it's always therapeutic, I think, you know, to get it just out. Um, cause I hadn't said anything for most of my life. Um, but then once I did, um, start writing, I thought, well, geez, if, if there is any way, if I just can help one person that's been through any kind of experience, um, like I have and, and help them in any way, then it's worth writing the book. That really was, um, how it started. And then, uh, you know, life happens along the way. I sat on the book for 20 years before I published it. Just published it this year. Yeah. Wow. So you wrote it that long ago and waited. Yep. Yep. What, what, so let me ask first, why did you wait? And then what prompted you to actually make that decision once you got there? So why did you wait to start with? A couple of reasons. When I was finished writing and you pictured 20 years ago in publishing, that's like night and day right now. So back then, self-publishing wasn't even, you didn't even think about it or even how to do it. So traditional publishing was the way to go. Um, and then once I had finished writing and my original uh, manuscript was 600 and something pages, which is way too long for anything. <laughs> um, but um, I had to have it professionally edited and you should have anything you know that you've written professionally edited. And I quickly learned that 
it was going to cost me about $5,000 to have my book edited. Um, I don't come from money. I didn't have a lot of money. My husband and myself were just surviving like probably most of America um, week yeah. to week and barely at that point making ends meet. Um, and the last thing I wanted to do was take money from what we needed and, and try to save up to have a book edited. So um, I had quit my career job when, when we got married because I was a workaholic and I, I didn't want to be a workaholic anymore. You have to balance your career um, with your personal life. It's very important. Um, so I thought to myself, what if I can create something where I can make a living and raise that $5,000, but still make some money where, you know, I can pitch in and we can eat and things like that and pay the rent. So that's how monster mini golf started. Um, my thought was, Hey, I'm going to create something that has little to no overhead. Um, we lived in a small kind of low income town. And I had always heard from um, the families and the parents that they can't even afford to go to the movies anymore. Movies have become so expensive. It's not affordable. And that was sad. So I thought, well, what if I can create something that's fun? It costs less than the movies. And me and a friend can kind of run this and I won't become this crazy workaholic by doing that. So <laughs> I created Monster Mini Golf back in 2004. I finished writing my book in late 2003. And um, we opened our first Monster Mini Golf in early 2004. We have an indoor glow in the dock, monster themed family entertainment center. Um, fast forward almost 20 years. Um, we have 30 locations, I've franchised it. It consumed our lives and still does. Um, but when the pandemic hit, the world stopped, yeah. everything stopped. And, and I think so many people went, holy cow, I, I can either do nothing or I can just rethink a lot of things. Um, and publishing obviously had changed. You can, everybody, uh, it's easy to self-publish. Mm -hmm. And I didn't write this to make money. I wrote this to put it out there for other people to read if they wanted to. So um, I published through Amazon and um, it's on it's on other places as well. Um, and it came out in May of this year. Congratulations. That's the longest, I'm sorry, answer ever. So I apologize. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Um, what I find interesting is I didn't want to be a workaholic. So I became an entrepreneur thinking, wait a yeah, minute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't say I accomplished that. <laughs> That's fair. Miserably. That's fair. That's a fair point. Um, so, so congratulations on the publishing. Uh, very cool. So tell me a little bit about every nine minutes. Why the title? What's the story behind it? Share about your book for me, if you would. Sure. Um, the title I came up with because um, every nine minutes in the U.S., a case of sexual child abuse is reported. And if you, you say, wow, that's a lot. And then if you look at the people who are victims of that, I'll bet you eight or nine out of 10 don't ever report it. I never did. Um, so you say, holy cow, that's every nine minutes something is reported and that's just this much of it. So to me, that was a, a pretty bold statement. Um, and that's why I titled it every nine minutes. My story takes place over the span of 30 years or approximately 30 years. It started when I was four years old and you grow up with me um, until I'm in my early 30s. Because um, I, it's, it's horrible that this, this happens to anybody, whether it's one time or over 
several times or any of the experiences of a child. I don't think anybody should steal a child's innocence like that. But um, when it does happen, a lot of times we hear stories about the actual incident itself or the incidences over a span of time. I wanted to show that um, what happens to somebody aside from the actual experience itself, how does that affect every part of your life as you grow up? So it's not just that it, it happens as a child and you, and you become this other person, but then when you're a teenager and you're experiencing real life and real growth outside and, and you know boys and girls and things like that, um, it affects you a different way. And then as you get into your 20s, a different way. And as an adult, a completely different way. Yeah. So that was my reasoning for the span. Gotcha. And as I was reading um, some of the book, uh, I, I do like to read at least parts of books that, that others that come on. Um, I don't always make the time for every single book, the whole thing, unfortunately, but I will keep reading your book. Um, but one of the stories that I found fascinating sounds like a positive word. This isn't necessarily positive, but the thing, one of the things that struck me was after, you know, you're, 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 you're abused, you survive, you have dysfunctional relationships, you end up living with your grandparents, right? Mm -hmm. And your, your grandma, who I'm, I'm, I'm guessing loved you, mm -hmm. but didn't always have the right things to say. And looks <laughs> like it's an, another dysfunctional relationship where you're getting ready to go out and be a young person. And she, she calls you a whore because you're going out late. Yeah. Like how, how much does what happened to you when you were younger play into the other relationships that develop? Cause it had to have been triggering. It had to, I mean, obviously you walked out of the house with tears streaming down your face. How much does what happened to you then for you personally, how much did that predict future relationships that were dysfunctional? Uh, it weighs in a lot, especially if, if, if you're the type of, um, I, I'd say victim, I hate using that word, but if, if you're the type of victim where one of your things is you never want to disappoint anybody. And I think that's what happens as, as a child. And when it starts so young is I think instinctively children never want to disappoint their parents. And my, my grandmother was, was to me bigger than my, my mom, because she was so much more important to me because I, I thought she loved me. I think she did too. You're right. But you know, old school kind of <laughs> crazy Italian grandmother, but, um, it does affect you because no matter what you do, you're saying, I want to do this. And then somewhere in your head, you're always thinking, but will they approve? Will that be acceptable? And, and, and that just becomes just part of how you think about everything. Um, whether it's your parents or anybody else, whether it's your boss, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, it doesn't matter. It's will they, will they like this too? And what you want to do becomes kind of secondary or what you think you should do becomes secondary. Um, you, you said earlier that, you know, so often when we tell our survivor story, we tell about, talk about what happened. And I do think that that's an important part of every survivor's story. Um, what do you want to share about your survivor story with our listeners um, to, to kind of give them a, a a little bit of a clue as to what happened, where they might see themselves in that, so they can see the hope in you. What part of, like, how, how much would you be willing to share about your survival? I've, you can ask me anything, anytime. I've, I've come to that point that once you put your story in words and then you 
kind of publish it. <laughs> um, you're kind of an open book, no pun intended at that point, um, because yeah. I think, and I'm, I am the kind of person that if you're going to do something, do it. And I'll go into it at, at just, Hey, this is it. I put it out there. Um, yeah. And I think it's my age that, that I've come to terms with that too. Makes a big sure. Difference. So, so take us back then you said it started at four. Mm-hmm. What, what happened? Share with our listeners what happened to you and how we can maybe watch um, out for this for our own kids. Well, it was my stepdad. So um, it wasn't my, not, it wasn't my real father, although I think it really it, 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 it hits everybody. There isn't, Hey, it just happens to these people. Um, but my mom married my dad when I was four years old or my stepdad when I was four years old and he had three little boys and three of us were all born the same year. So he had a son that was born in 1964 and a son that was born um, in December of 1964. So January and December, I was born in September. So this three kids, the same exact age were all four. And then he had a three-year-old. So bam, you know, instant family. Um, my mom had four children, you know, opposed to one little girl. Um, my mom's a very, very weak person and she loved this guy. So um, going into all of this, that's a lot for a little kid to take on. You know, you're like, whoa, this is a lot of craziness. And we moved into his house with his mother living upstairs who um, didn't approve of, of me or probably the mom, I don't think. Um, but the abuse, it, as early as I can remember, started when we moved in. I just woke up one night and I was like, holy cow, this is, this is what, what's happening to me. And I got scared. I remember being really scared. And my instinct was don't make mommy upset. This is the first time she's been happy. And for what I can remember, she was yelling and screaming and crying when we lived it with my grandparents. So that's, I think, I don't know if it was just me or that's what children do is you don't ever want to make your parents upset. And for me, my mom was the most important thing. Um, and it just became the thing. Don't make mom upset, you know? And then I was taught that, you know, he adopted me. Um, I remember that day. I remember being in court. I remember the questions they asked me. I remember what my mom saying, answer all of these questions this way, because we want to be a real family. We want to be a normal family. And that stuck with me forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a lot of pressure for a young yeah. one, especially when you're facing that kind of abuse. Yeah. You just, um, it's a child. Mm-hmm. I mean, ask me yeah. that now that's different, but, but no, that's a four-year-old child. They just want to make their parents happy. And then this continued over years. It, Until uh, I, I moved out when I was 18. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you just condition yourself. In my case, um, at some point as I grew up, um, what happened at night um, was a different Christina. You know, I dealt with it. I, I learned to just, this is what happens to me at night. I will control it. I get up in the morning and that's real Christina walking out the door. And I just learned to separate the two. Not that I, mean, wow. I told myself I was learning to separate the two, but I did, you know? Yeah. yeah. That compartmentalization from a very yeah. young age, you know, I'm, I don't know if I, I assume you've heard this, but I'm, I'm sorry that that happened to you. Um, thank you so much for sharing that and, and trusting us and having that courage. Um, at what point did you 
realize how wrong it was? And did you want to try to find help? What does that look like for you as a young Christina? Um, yeah, I, I think I always, you know, when something is wrong, because I remember thinking to myself, this isn't what daddy should do. Um, but mommy's gonna be really upset, you know, so you balance that a little bit. And then as you actually become a, a teenager, when boys enter your life, when you go from being a little child and there is just that separation, you know? Um, but now there's a boy that likes me and my father hates him, you know? <laughs> and my mother wants to make, you know, does she just does anything he says um, and she will protect him way over me. Um, so that was the first step of, wow, this is a new thing that I have to deal with. And you add that new level of, and for lack of a better word, hate to that person. Um, and, and as you get to be a teenager, that's another level, you know? And then yeah. in my case, his son was the spinning image of him. And then it was, he was a, my older brother is a terrible, terrible person. Um, mm. You know, at one point there were two of them, but, wow. but no matter what happened, whenever I thought maybe I'm going to open the door a little bit, um, she sided with him. And my fear was they're going to send me to an orphanage. And that's terrifying, no matter, especially if you're a, a teenager, that's, I think, worse than when you're a little kid, because you have a, your, your fears get bigger, because you know more. Um, you know, it's, you just think you're never coming back. And to me, I could control the world that I was in. My fear was not being able to control wherever they would put me. That was, that was more terrifying to me. Yeah. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. Kind of hundred percent. Yep. Yep. Yeah. What does, what does family look like now? Are any of them in your life? Have you had any kind of reconciliation? What does, what does a healthy relationship look like for you? Uh, my mom is not in my life and that was a choice I made. And it was probably the healthiest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, my dad's pat, my stepdad's passed away. Um, and my brothers there, uh, my older brother is not in my life, but, um, but my family aside from me has stayed the family. Um, you know, didn't happen to them. Um, some believe it, some don't. Some to this day protect him and my brother. My, they just do publicly too. After it, it just was mind boggling um, because the truth sometimes isn't convenient for their lifestyle. It's embarrassing. Um, even if it's happening generation after generation, that to me is mind boggling that somebody would protect that person, but they do. Yeah. What kind of work do you do to reconcile that? Have you therapy? Do you just compartmentalize? Like, what does that look like for you now? I did when my, when I met my husband, um, which is before I wrote my book, but I mean, 20 plus years ago, um, I did, I went to therapy I'm going to spend some months doing that. It was helpful. And that's what led me to, to writing. I think I was like, you know what? I, I, you realize that there are so many people's lives who didn't survive this. They might be out there. They might be breathing every day and walking, but you don't survive it. I don't, I don't call us survivors. <laughs> we just learn how to balance it. That's all. So I've learned how to balance it. Um, and I, I thought that I, in my head, um, I think I've balanced it better than a lot of people who've done it. So if I could help them balance it better, then that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, nobody's nobody's has it. like woohoo accomplished it. <laughs> right, right. Doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, so part of why you wrote the book, obviously, part of why you speak. Um, yeah. Do you also like? Do you tie that into being an entrepreneur and an inspiration in the business world? Then too, do you connect all of that together when you talk to folks? Oh, I do. Yeah, and my a lot of people you end up with, um, like everybody ends up ends up with vices. So some. So many people end up, you know, drugs and alcohol and just self-abuse, um, which is, it's unfortunate. Mine, for whatever reason, was um, doing none of those for fear of losing control and always striving to take care of myself, which led to the workaholic type person that I've become. So in the long run, I ended up being very successful. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And that's detrimental in a lot of ways emotionally. Um, but as I got older and, you know, I've, again, I've learned how to balance it a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, that's, I think that's a good thing in some ways, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, every just personal opinion, I am not a, a therapist. I'm not anybody special. It's the, you know, everything in moderation kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. And maybe not everything, like don't go inject a little bit of heroin. Like I'm not saying that, <laughs> but, but but moderation of like, you know, work, right? You, you go and yeah. you become successful. You're driven. You build a successful business. You do that in moderation, but then it can go the other way and become that workaholic and recognizing that and dealing with that, even if it's not perfect, yeah. it's an inspiration to others. Um, so, you know, good on that. Um, when you started uh, Monster Mini Golf, you said earlier that you did that to start to pay for you know, the editing of your book. Mm -hmm. What you know, once you started it and you saw it becoming successful, did you still just kind of think, well, I just want to keep this on the shelf anyway, or did you immediately start to think I can do this pretty soon? Cause it still was several years. What did that look like? You mean the, the publishing of the book? Yeah. Like yeah. You know, when, when you know, it costs money to do it. So you thought, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to wait. Um, you start to see success with monster mini golf, yep. but you, but you still waited. Why was I, that? I think I, I, over the years, um, I've picked it up with the intention of publishing it over the 20 years, probably three or four times, because in the back of my head, that's always the goal. I think that I wasn't ready. I think it was a little fearful um, because you are scared um, that am I ready to tell the world all of these things that, that have happened to me, even though I, I wouldn't admit it back then. Now I'm thinking, ah, that was probably me being a little, a little scared. Um, some of the characters in the last 20 years have passed away, making it a little bit easier. Um, and then by the time I sat down, um, when COVID hit, uh, I sat down and I personally went through the entire book again, rewrote um, a lot and not rewrote it, like change things, but I'm, I'm smarter, I'm, you know, I'm 20 years wiser. So I went, oh, yeah. I know what was going on with me here. I just wasn't ready to admit it. Um, I've had five different editors over the 20 years. So the amount of money I have in this book, I'll never get back ever. But um, <laughs> e each experience was a learning experience with that too. The last editor um, that worked with me on this um, was wonderful. And she, on my last pass through said, okay, I think you're ready, but you need to elaborate in this scene, in this scene, in this scene, if you really, really want to help others relate or understand you know to, to what you've been through and i sent her back something saying 
no way in the world can I do that. I just don't have that ability. Um, this was last year around Christmas, before Christmas, around Thanksgiving. And I sat on it for six weeks and didn't answer. I just never wrote back to her and I didn't do anything. And I said, I, I can't elaborate on that scene. I don't have it in me. And then got up at some point, you know, in early January and said one day, I'm going to do it. <laughs> it sucked, <laughs> um, yeah. but I got it. She was right. She was 100% right. So, yeah, it's um, that's the commitment part that sometimes is hard. Yeah. What advice do you have for those who might be listening to say, yeah, I've got a survivor story. I want to get it out there to, to help others to just be cathartic. Even if I don't ever publish it, maybe I just want to write it. What advice do you have for those who are interested in that journey? Um, get it down in words. So don't don't be concerned with how should I do this? What's the format? What's this? Just get it all out on words. Um, and then you go to that next step. Because I think a lot of folks say they'll go to all their friends or people they think know things. So you have to do it this way. You have to do it that way. You don't have to do it anyway. You just have to get it on paper first. And then one of the other things that um, this last editor, it was fantastic advice, said we were down to like, I think 470 pages, which is still a lot. You should be, you know, and we tried to get it around the, you know, 300s. Um, she said, take every chapter that you've made a chapter in your book and read it and ask yourself, does this help or, or move the story forward to the next point? And if it doesn't, it doesn't belong there. Um, and that helped a lot. You know, the editing mm. got way down then. So, yeah. yeah helped that teach yourself edit a little bit, huh? It did. It really, really did. Um, I would say writing wasn't the hard part. Editing was grueling. It was horrible. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard that from authors. <laughs> oh, my God. It was intense. I hated it so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, you get, you've, so you've got a book, you're doing some, some speaking, you're a multi-million dollar business owner. You've set up a successful franchise <laughs> business. What's next? Um, I, I tell my husband this a lot. I mean, we've, we've accomplished a lot with our business. I love our business and I'll do it, you know, for as long as, as we're going to do it. But um, my, my next goal is to be able to do something that, helps people that has nothing to do with making them more money. I we've made money. We've, I, I'm successful. I'm, I'm very fortunate there. Um, but now I want to do, I want to focus on this or things that, you know, I don't know, are more fulfilling than money, which is, you know, you, that's a double-edged sword because you do need money to survive. And because I've become successful, I was able to have, five different editors, you know, beginning, I couldn't afford the one. So yeah, it's, yeah. it goes both ways. Yeah. And then um, what other, so another, another advice question um, for anybody listening who says, you know, whether, whether they've been memories triggered that they went through something a long time ago, they're going through it now. They they're seeing things in other, in, in kids maybe who like, this might mm. be a red flag what steps do we take mm -hmm. to begin to to heal what's the first piece of advice you give to somebody who's in that situation that's is looking at somebody and they have a red flag or that or that is a person that it's happening to those are two different um, things i mean that that's a great point christina that's a great point sometimes i ask too many questions at once let's start with um <laughs> right. the red flag thing right let's yeah if you, if, you know if, if you could have gone back to four-year-old five-year-old you 
and fixed it and saved you and done something to change it. If somebody has that power now and they recognize that in someone, what should we do to start with? Um, well, my advice is, uh, you could go right to the subject and the, you know, or the parent, but, um, and this is from experience. Sometimes if you see it happening to somebody and you know, it's happening or you in your red flag, you say, okay, this is, this is happening in this family. Uh, and you go directly to the mom or the dad who, you know, of the opposite one, um, sometimes they don't want to believe it and they'll push you away and they'll tell you, there's no way, you know, you're ruining our family, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's hard to deal with. That's a slap in the face. And I've been there and I, and I watched it happen because they'll choose their life over the truth. Um, so my advice is go to the school, go to your, the, wherever that child goes to school, put your two cents in with a principal, a guidance counselor, anybody, because that's their job. They have an obligation if they see something or they have red flags, they're, they have to say something. Um, gets you out of the loop. Um, doesn't mean that what you're saying is right because they might, they might not agree with you and you might be wrong for all, for all you know. Um, but at least you're putting it into a professional's hands who as part of their training, they're supposed to watch for things like that. I know, and again, I'm not a professional, <laughs> I'm not a counselor by any means, or, yeah. you know, but um, yeah. I think if, if I looked back to that situation that I went through and now look at a girl that's in her twenties that uh, has every red flag there is that she went through the same thing that I did, um, I would, I would have gone to the school, but I didn't know any better then. didn't even occur to me to go to the school, you know? That's powerful. I, that's a, I, I appreciate that advice. I think that's wise. Um, great, great advice. Thank you. Any, um, any parting words of, of hope and light you want to give to the listeners, whoever's listening, going, either going through it or know someone or whatever, it feels it's such a heavy topic, Yeah. but at the end of the day, you've built a life for yourself that is making a difference. Um, what kind of hope can you give those listening? Um, do you, I, I do believe, and it's not easy, um, that you can balance it. So my only goal was don't let it overcome me. You know, it, it's not going to go away. It's not, you're not going to ever survive it. Cause I think that's un, unattainable. You can't, you can't survive it. You can't just be the person that you, you're not. Um, but you can not let it take you over. And, um, mm. and I think that that's, I think I've been through a lot. And if you read my, I've been through some really crazy, crazy things in that book that aside from the, the nightly abuse that um, helped me learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and I do think there's an asset there um, through speaking and just talking to people. Yeah. And it's okay not to, you don't have to keep your family. I mean, I, that, it's good that if you can, fantastic. But I, one of the worst things that would hurt me and, and it would make me worse growing up was when I might try to say, Hey, I, I've got an issue with my mom or my dad. Um, the answer is just work through it. Those are your parents. You always have to love your parents. And that's a hundred percent bullshit. I do not, you do not because it will just destroy you. If you let it, that was probably the biggest, most, the best thing I did for myself doesn't mean everybody that's the right thing, but, but toxic, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Healthy boundaries, get rid of toxic yeah. relationships, even when it's that difficult. I think it's, that's not easy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not, and when you do it, it's like, I think it's very similar to divorce. Um, when you initially do it, that first, whatever period, whatever that first period is where you every day get up and say, ah, it was easier. You just, you get, you're weak, you're insecure. Um, maybe I'll go back to what I was doing. Suffer through that because you're going to get up one day and go, holy cow, I, I've got a breath of fresh air in me. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Well, Christina, thank you so much. Um, listeners, check out every nine minutes on Amazon. Um, look for the Monster Mini Golf information. We'll have links in the, in the show notes. Uh, Christina Vitaliano. Christina, thank you so much for being a part of our show and for sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasasmi.org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it, all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan. The views expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services.